Join us now as we proudly celebrate the 100th episode of the Google Cloud Platform Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number 100 of the weekly Google Cloud Platform Podcast. I am Francesc Campoy and I'm here with my colleague Mark Mandel. Hey Mark, how are you doing? I am so excited. <laughs> Why, I wonder? We have been surf on the podcast. <laughs> yes, we so just excited. we just finished an amazing, amazing interview with Vinserf, one of the fathers of the internet. And I feel yep. like there's no intro necessary. There's no cool things of the week. But I mean the cool thing of the week is we interviewed Vinserf. So yep. I feel like we should just give all our audience this present and just enjoy. Yeah, uh, it's a long interview, so we want to make sure you have enough time to listen to it all. So yeah, let's just jump straight into it. It's fantastic. It's all for you. Enjoy. So it is with an incredible honor that we are welcoming today Vinserf, uh, one of the fathers of the internet, as the Wikipedia says, to the Google Cloud Platform podcast to celebrate episode 100. Vin, thank you so much for joining us today. I am just delighted. This is the kind of conversation I live for. So I'm looking forward to the questions and the repartee. Yeah, I'm incredibly excited because I've been a huge fan for a very long time, obviously, but also because I took a selfie with you three years <laughs> ago in a cafe in Montevideo. And since then, I've always wanted to have a longer conversation. So all of these podcasts was just as an excuse to get to meet you again. So thank you for joining us. <laughs> well, I really, as I say, I really am delighted. And there's so much to say about how Google has transformed its world uh, in the Google Cloud platform, uh, something that we can all be proud of, but also recognize huge amount of work uh, lying ahead uh, to make it more useful for our, our own internal purposes and for uh, the users that we have all around the world. Cool. Um, well, before we get stuck into all that stuff, because, oh my God, I'm so excited. <laughs> if anyone hasn't had the pleasure of knowing, reading, or hearing about Vint Surf, Vint, do you want to give us a little bit about you and your background and what you do at Google? Well, uh, sure, I'd be happy to do that. I've been at Google since 2005. I joined as vice president and chief internet evangelist. And I confess to you that I did not ask for that title. Uh, <laughs> I, asked, I, I was asked what title did I want, and I said Archduke. And Larry and Eric and Sergey ran off and they came back and they said, you know, the previous Archduke was Ferdinand and he was assassinated in 1914 and it started World War One. Maybe that's not a good title to have. Why don't you be our chief Internet evangelist? <laughs> and I said, OK, I can do that, considering I've been doing it for about 35 years before I joined Google. Uh, so, of course, before that, uh, I had many uh, roles to play uh, in the evolution of the Internet. Uh, and I'd like to think I still have uh, a role to play. Uh, Eric Schmidt, our uh, executive chairman, uh, pointed out to me that I wasn't allowed to retire. I said, why not? And he said, because you're only half done, there's still three and a half billion people to convert uh, to get up on the internet. And uh, he's right about that. Uh, there is still much work to be done. Cool, so that actually ties up really well with one of our first questions, which is, so what does Vainserve do day to day? Uh, well, fortunately, uh, my life is uh, not repetitive. Uh, every day is new and different. Uh, I have uh, many meetings, like today, for example, I was at the Inter-American Development Bank for the morning, 
uh, meeting with people who are interested in making major investments in infrastructure. They're trying to understand how they can take actions that will improve access to the internet in the developing world. Uh, they're trying to understand you know, what conditions need to be in place so that an investment they might make uh, will have productive results. And uh, in that case, of course, we're worried about the entire ecosystem surrounding the implementation and operation of the internet uh, and the creation of new applications that will be useful to people locally in local languages in addition to facilitating visibility for companies in the rest of the world, uh, which is something we try to do for people who are advertising their products and services. So I spend a lot of time both here in Washington and on the road uh, on policy-related matters that have to do with the use and abuse of the Internet. Okay, that's another big theme, which is that once you put the general public up on the Internet, you get what you sort of deserve, which is the general public, including people that don't have your best interests in mind. And so a big issue for us and others uh, that offer services on the net is how to deal with people who inject bad information onto the network, who commit fraud, who uh, bully people, who uh, you know, distribute malware. Uh, there are a variety of, of things that uh, we're well aware of, thanks to headlines, uh, that are harmful in the network environment. And so it's our job is to do everything we can at Google to limit the kinds of damage that can be done while at the same time enhancing and enabling all kinds of very positive um, uh, applications on the network. Uh, so our search term, our search engine uh, is very much a tool that people use to find out you know, what's available on the network, what products and services are there, not just on the net, but in the general nearby areas or even around the world. So um, part of my job is to help people think their way through what conditions they need to create if they don't already exist. Uh, to both build and operate pieces of the internet and then construct applications on top. How to enable it to be beneficial to the people who are trying to use this far-flung uh, global system. Uh, I'm in the research group, it turns out, and report up to John G. and Andrea, so I also get exposed to a lot of the um, things that are going on on the research side, especially in artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum computing, and things like that, uh, which are uh, well beyond my personal capability, but I'm fascinated by. Uh, on top of which, Google has been very generous with my time and so I do outside activities that contribute also to this. So I sit on the National Science Board overseeing the National Science Foundation which is doing a great deal of research in all the various sciences including computer science. I had been chairman of the America's Registry for Internet Numbers until uh, the uh, beginning of this year which oversees the allocation of internet address space to people in the Caribbean and North America. I was chairman of the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers from 2000 to 2007. Again, a major component of the internet infrastructure managing the domain name system and top level IP address allocation. Google has been very willing to allow me to spend time in the internet space in one way or another, whether it's directly associated with Google or more generally with the uh, internet infrastructure. And so I'm very grateful for that. Fantastic. There's so much stuff to unpack there. I think that you, you <laughs> clearly do so much amazing things. Um, why don't we sort of go back a little? I'm, I'm very curious about sort of the history of some of this stuff. It's actually kind of hilarious. We were talking about this earlier. Francesca's in Paris, France. I'm currently in Melbourne, Australia. You're in Washington. The very 
network and infrastructure that you fathered, for lack of a better term, makes this whole thing possible. But yeah, you you are known as like sort of one of the fathers of the internet. Uh, so thank you very much for that, <laughs> making our jobs <laughs> well, all possible. Uh, yeah, to the, um, to the extent that this has been beneficial, I thank you for the credit. <laughs> to the extent that some damage has been done, um, I refuse to accept responsibility. <laughs> thank you for the that good parts. That seems right, I There yeah, you go. Thank you yeah, thank you for much. all yeah. the good parts. But I'm, I'm super curious. I mean, when you were working in this, you know, back at the origin state, you know, many people consider the internet sort of for, for those of us who have become used to it and who have access to it, become almost a human right or a requisite part of existence. Did you ever see that in the pathway of this distributed network you were building? Well, I certainly never anticipated the notion that access to Internet might be considered a human right. And, and as you may know, I have published uh, at least one an op-ed that suggested that that was not a, a good formulation. I'd like to come back to that, uh, but let's go back to the origins of this system. Uh, it was originally funded by the American Defense Department. My partner in the design is Robert Kahn, uh, who at the time was at the Defense uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency. This is way back in late 72, early 73 of the previous century. God, that sounds like a long time ago. Um, and it was, actually. So uh, Bob had this idea that open networking would be a good thing. Uh, that uh, the uh, packet switching technology of the ARPANET project could be replicated in multiple networks, some uh, that are mobile radio, some over satellite, some over dedicated wireline, and that these multiplicity of packet switch networks needed to be um, interconnected in a way that created commonality. And the only way we could do that was to develop a set of protocols that would let these disparate packet switch nets look like one gigantic network, although made up of many nets, so the internet is a network of networks. Uh, we developed the protocols and the concepts to do that in 1973 and published a paper in 1974, uh, developed the detailed specs for the protocols in late 74, started implementation in 1975, ran through a series of iterations, four of them or so, stabilized the design in 1978, started implementing it on many different operating systems, turned the system on on January 1st, 1983. Now, you might say, did you have any idea that it was going to be global in scope? The answer is absolutely, because we imagined this would be needed by the American Defense Department for command and control. That means it has to work no matter where the Defense Department deployed, which meant it had to work everywhere in the world. So uh, we were already thinking in global terms at the time that this design was being done. We actually didn't quite get it right. We, uh, we thought that um, a 32-bit internet ad numerical address space would be enough at least to do an experiment. So we designed the system to have 4.3 billion terminations. And that, I think, might have been more than there were people in the world at the time we were doing this work. Hmm. However, we ran out around 2011. Fortunately, uh, the engineers who do the standards for the internet in the Internet Engineering Task Force could foresee that we were going to run out and designed a new format for uh, the internet packets that had a 128-bit address space. Now, we're not talking about domain names, which are alphameric, for example, google.com. We're talking about an underlying uh, uh, numerical address space, sort of like phone numbers, although the analogy is sometimes doesn't work, but it's similar in nature. So uh, a 128-bit address space is also re referred to as IP version 6, Internet Protocol version mm -hmm. 6, which gives you 3.4 times 10 to the 38th addresses, which is a big number. 
Google module. has been uh, at the forefront of implementing IPv6 for the various applications that it supports, and it will continue to support both v4 and v6 address spaces until such time as v4 seems to be no longer needed. Uh, so uh, we are among the good guys who have been pushing v6 implementations. It's probably got to about 30% worldwide on average, although there are some networks that are 100% capable of doing both the older version 32-bit addresses and the 128-bit, and there are some networks that haven't done anything yet at all. So there's still work to be done. The Internet of Things, which is you know, threatening to overwhelm uh, us in terms of numbers of devices on the net, could have as many as 50 billion devices uh, in the system by the early 2020s, uh, which will definitely need the IPv6 expanded address space. Mobile phones uh, also are dependent on this. The uh, thing called LTE, or long-term uh, evolution, uh, which is sometimes uh, called 4G, uh, also makes use of IPv6 address space. So you can see this proliferation of devices is driving that. Finally, uh, with regard to Internet of Things, it's something our company cares a great deal about. There are both the production of these devices at Nest, for example, and at Google, and there is the cloud component of this, which is helping to monitor the devices, to provide uh, artificial intelligence applications through those devices, such as Google Assistant by way of Google Home or by way of the Pixel uh, or, uh, or the uh, Chromebooks or other kinds of equipment that Google makes. So uh, we are now faced with a proliferation of devices and also a great deal of concern for safety and security, privacy and reliability of this increasingly uh, large system of devices all interacting with each other. And so that's certainly going to be a challenge not only for Google but for all the other parties who are beginning to participate in the Internet of Things. Now, there's lots more to be said there, but let me stop there and, and just say that mm -hmm. there's lots that I've been finding myself engaged in uh, because of this huge investment that we and others are making in Internet-enabled devices. So, uh, to go back a little bit to the more society side of the Internet, I'm curious about, were you expecting this huge change in society? Like, Literally, the internet has changed the way we do things. We communicate, we work, we do everything. Was that something that you expected to? Yes, and, uh, and I can uh, prove this in the following sense. In 1992, uh, I became the founding president of something called the Internet Society. And why did we call it that? Because I believe that a society would emerge out of the internet and indeed it has, that society may not be one that we like 100%, uh, and this is what happens when you create new infrastructure. People find ways to use it and to abuse it. It's like cars in the roads that they drive on. People get drunk and they drive the cars and run into each other, run into things, kill themselves or other, harm other people. Uh, the Internet has its downsides. Uh, it, it has lowered the barrier to um, access to information, it has lowered the barrier for expression to practically zero. And I've always thought that was a good thing, that we want more ability for people to both express themselves and to share what they know and to find out what other people are willing to share. But at the same time, we also have to recognize that there are people who get on the net 
and do not have the rest of the society's best interests at, at heart. So we worry about fraud, we worry about false information or misinformation or so-called fake news and things like that. Uh, we worry about malware that people create and propagate through the network and uh, cause harm to devices that are attached to the network or uh, essentially grab control over those devices and turn them into what are called botnets, which are sort of robotic networks that can then be used to generate denial of service attacks or to generate spam or to do other kinds of things that are potentially harmful. So uh, this huge global system, which has literally, I would say, millions of networks, including the little local one that you run at home, for instance, and then the big gigantic globe-spanning networks of the telcos and the cable codes, uh, this, this system uh, is, like every other infrastructure, capable of being abused. And we're experiencing the effects of the society which is emerging out of this technology. So now we have to struggle uh, with protecting people against harmful experiences online. And sometimes we can build technical means of protecting them, detecting malware, for example, uh, de you know, defending against denial of service attacks, filtering out spam, which we do very well in our Gmail service. Uh, so we have these technical um, means of protecting people, uh, two-factor authentication to keep accounts from being seized or, or hijacked. But you can't assure that you can prevent all harmful acts from occurring on the net uh, through technical means. And so you also have to build in mechanisms for saying, if we detect or catch you doing some of these bad things, there will be consequences. Uh, and here now we get into international agreements because the network is global in scope and the, the perpetrator of harm may be in one jurisdiction and the, uh, the victim in another across international boundaries, which immediately says that we need to have cooperative interactions among the countries that are part of the internet environment. There are just so many issues here that we have to cope with, not only as Google, but also uh, more broadly as citizens in the online environment. Uh, so I'm actually spending a lot of my time asking questions about policy, for example, and how it can be implemented and enforced. Where does the policy come from? Can we use multi-stakeholder processes to establish policy and then use law enforcement and trade agreements and other kinds of things uh, to enforce safety? for the people who are online to enforce their privacy, to protect them against uh, various forms of abuse. And I might point out one more thing, as long as I'm rattling on here, that, um, <laughs> that uh, this lowering of barrier for speech means that you and I and others on the net, the three and a half billion or so that we believe are online, now have an additional challenge before them, and that is to think critically about what we're seeing and hearing in this environment because it's easy to inject malware or easy, I should say, inject false information or mistaken information in the system. And we, our search engine finds both the good stuff and sometimes the not so good stuff. And so as users of the network, we suddenly inherit this responsibility for thinking critically about what we're actually seeing and hearing and questioning where did it come from? What's the basis for my belief that this is useful versus bad information? I think a lot of people are a little uncomfortable that they suddenly inherited this responsibility, 
But indeed, if you want to use the network to best effect, you actually have to think critically about that. So I think this segues into an, an interesting topic as well when we're talking about the safety of the internet and both from a malware and also from a societal point of view. How do you think this affects either net neutrality or the idea of net neutrality? Does it have an impact um, or how we should be thinking about that? So this is a very good question. And, and the term net neutrality, as I'm sure your listeners know, uh, is used in different ways in different parts of the world. So we have to be careful about the use of the term and ask, okay, in what context are we asking the question? In the United States, for instance, during the early 1990s, there were about 8,000 internet service providers. This, this was a dial-up system. And if you to reach a particular internet server or service, you just dialed a particular number that got you to a modem bank. Um, if you didn't like the service, it was easy to switch. You just dialed a different number. And so there was quite a bit of user choice in terms of access to the internet. Along comes broadband, and suddenly there are very few providers of broadband service, the telcos, the cable codes, uh, and that's about it. So uh, although in recent times we're starting to see wireless services uh, increasing in their data rates so that they could be considered broadband as well. So uh, during this uh, period, roughly um, in the very late 1990s, early 2000s, um, in the U.S., if you were looking at broadband service as a consumer, you didn't have very much choice. If you were in the rural parts of the country, you had zero choice for broadband. No one was providing that service. If you were in the suburban areas, you might have a choice of either a telco or a cable co. And in the urban areas, you might have a choice of two suppliers of broadband. So not everyone was uniformly able to get competitive access to broadband service. This is still a problem today. And the absence of enough competition and choice for the consumers, there's always the risk that a monopoly supplier will in fact interfere with uh, people's freedom to use the network any way they want. For example, if you're in the vertical business of providing video services in addition to underlying internet service, uh, it might be tempting to interfere with a competitor's video service going through the internet channel. And in fact, there were some uh, indications of this kind of bad behavior on the part of some of the broadband carriers who would inhibit voice over IP or would interfere with, uh, with streaming video in order to induce uh, customers to use their service uh, or possibly to um, uh, interfere with intermediate carriers who were trying to carry traffic. Uh, and who were getting squeezed and therefore quality of service suffered. So we have what I think are uh, fewer choices as consumers and as the choice goes down then the risk factors go up and so now you need some regulation in order to assure that the consumer interests are protected. So the net neutrality rules mostly as I see it in the US are intended to limit uh, the ability of a broadband internet service access provider to interfere with what you do with the network, where you go on the net, what products and services you exercise. That's why it's been a big issue here in the US. Uh, the um, ability of the Federal Communications Commission to step in and defend the user's choices uh, was limited for a time because there was a choice made by the FCC to treat the internet as an unregulated information service. And subsequently there was an attempt to put in uh, principles for net neutrality or defense against uh, practices that were anti-competitive. 
when they tried to, when the FCC tried to enforce those principles, it was told by the Supreme Court that you didn't have a legal basis for exercising that control because the FCC had decided that the internet was an unregulated service, so they had no basis for regulation. This caused uh, the FCC, uh, under Tom Wheeler, uh, to shift the uh, internet service into Title II, which is uh, the telecom title, reinstantiating the FCC's ability to regulate. And now, of course, under the new administration, Ajit Pai, the current chairman, is trying to undo that particular decision uh, and to put the internet back into an unregulated state, which means that there would be no legal basis for protecting users whose freedom of choice may have been harmed uh, by a non-neutral uh, provider. So at this stage in the U.S., there's some uncertainty about protecting user interests. In other parts of the world, there may be enough competition so the users can simply choose a different carrier or different internet service provider uh, in order to get service and, there, and thereby use competition as a balancing effect. Here in the U.S., uh, there isn't enough competition and so regulation seems to be the only alternative. That is really concerning. I was actually not aware of the last part, so thank you for sharing that. Since you're already mentioning access to the internet on other parts of the world, I'm curious about, since you were able to predict a little bit that uh, the internet would be a global thing and it changed the world, do you think that having the rest of the world get access to the internet will change it again or it will be more of a progressive thing? Uh, well, it will certainly change it. For one thing, people, half the people in the world don't have access yet. And we already know some of the things that have happened, positive and negative, for the people who are already online. The reason I think it will change, although maybe not in predictable ways, is that the people who will get access next, the next billion or two, probably will get access through a wireless method rather than a wired method. They probably will have smart mobile phones, which uh, now are heavily populated all around the world. They will have needs which are, have evolved over time. And so those of us who have been online for, uh, especially in the broadband world, let's say for the last 15 years or so, uh, have experienced the internet largely through laptops. And now, of course, the rest of the world is going to experience the Internet through smartphones and possibly other smart devices as the Internet of Things uh, continues to deploy. So their experiences and their needs for service may turn out to be quite different from what we experienced 10 or 15 years ago. The consequence of that is that there is opportunity everywhere, and in, on top of which solutions to issues arising in this vastly increased demand uh, may actually come from the people who are new to the Internet as opposed to people who have been around for a while. Don't forget that intelligence is uniformly distributed around the world, but a lot of the smart people may not be able to exercise their intelligence to good effect with regard to Internet because the opportunities may not be there. It, there may not be um, incentive for investment, for example. They may not have the moral equivalent of venture capital and risk-taking, which is uh, endemic in the Silicon Valley, uh, less so in other parts of the world. So I, you know, I think that the newer um, inductees into the internet family will experience new needs and, uh, and uh, come up with new requirements, but also new solutions. 
which may propagate back into the rest of the internet. Uh, so, I mean, to give you an example, uh, in China, I've been told in the eastern part of China that don't bother carrying cash, everything is paid for with the mobile. Uh, and even the beggars, you know, hold up their little mobiles and say, you know, take a picture of this uh, little quad, uh, you know, symbol and transfer money to me. Uh, which is, I mean, that has to be a very weird feeling, you know, somebody who's begging using a, a smartphone and saying, hey, wait a minute, you have a smartphone and you're begging, Why did, how does that not work? But I will say uh, in India, for example, where digital identities have been issued to some 800 million people, these people have suddenly become visible to the government, whereas before they were not, and they become eligible for benefits that they couldn't get before. Estonia only has a million and a half people. They are as heavily networked and uh, internet uh, enabled as any country in the world. And they are an interesting um, place to look because when 100% of the population is online with, uh, with digital identities and everything else, there are things you can do relying on the fact that 100% of the people have access as opposed to a country like the US where maybe 80% uh, have access and the other 20% don't so you have to accommodate uh, that statistic. So here we are with examples of places that are deeply embedded in the internet system and in digital uh, applications. It's like explorers going out into a territory which nobody has been in and reporting back to us what's out there so we don't have to make the same mistakes they do. Speaking of explorers, um, thinking like possibly way in the future or possibly not, depending on some of the advents <laughs> that we've been seeing lately around interplanetary and space travel, when you built the internet as it was, were you thinking about possibly interplanetary networks, you know, having space stations that currently orbit the Earth and having them communicate backwards and forwards? Was that something that you built into the protocol and design of the system? Or do you think it's going to change going forward? Actually, I know it's going to change because we're already there. We're operating an interplanetary system and it did, the TCP IP protocols did not work. Uh, and we, uh, and when I say we, I'm speaking of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at, uh, at NASA, plus now many of the other NASA uh, laboratories. I started work on an interplanetary extension of the Internet in 1998 at JPL, and we very quickly realized that the TCP protocols were designed in a low latency context with relatively high reliability. In space, you have the inverse of that. You have low reliability and you have variable and often very long latencies. We're talking about hours to days. So you know, ping is not your friend here in terms of uh, network management and interaction. Uh, you don't really know how long it's going to take for uh, an interplanetary packet to get to its destination. It may have to hop through multiple sites, you know, from Earth to Mars to Jupiter to wherever. Uh, so we had to develop a whole new suite of protocols, which we call the bundle protocol, uh, which is an instance of what is called delay and disruption tolerant networking. So in fact, we have thought our way through that. We've now deployed uh, first a prototype system on Mars, and now uh, we've deployed the most recent and fully uh, standardized protocols on the International Space Station. And we hope those same standardized protocols will be on board spacecraft, which will be going to Mars and elsewhere during the 2020s. So in that particular case, uh, we had to accept that the original design simply was not capable of accommodating the kinds of lossy, long, uh, highly variable delay that the space environment uh, presents us with. Uh, and so that's why we've designed a new system. But it's, it is interoperable with the rest of the internet. It just 
It's just that the rest of the internet uh, isn't organized around that suite of protocols. So that is amazing. <laughs> Sincerely, I'm really impressed with that. Uh, I'm wondering now, is there something else other than TCP IP, which um, clearly there is? Uh, are these protocols still based on uh, the end-to-end principle? Like, uh, Could you tell us a little bit what is the end-to-end principle and, and is that something that you're forgetting now to go interplanetary or is it actually more, even more important? No, well, end-to-end basically said you put something into the network and in theory it should pop out looking exactly the same on the other end. And you rely on the fact that the packets aren't being altered or modified in between. This uh, is still very much a principle that lots of us would like to hang on to as part of the Internet characteristic. The reason that's so valuable is that if you're building uh, protocols that are uh, in, at the edges of the network, building up from the basic Internet protocol, uh, this end-to-end principle helps a lot because uh, you can assume that what was put in by some party in some distant part of the network uh, arrives intact at the other end. Uh, Now, there are ways of assuring that by using cryptography, for example, digital signatures and other things to assure integrity of the end-to-end concepts. There have been some, let me say, breaks in this end-to-end notion. For example, is the internet deployed commercially in the late 80s and early 90s? Uh, we saw corporations building firewalls uh, around their their corporate assets uh, in order to try to protect uh, against attacks coming through the network to their uh, targeted uh, corporate infrastructure. And that int- actually introduced down in the guts of the network something which uh, potentially uh, interfered with the end-to-end principle because, in fact, the packets were getting examined, they might be destroyed, they might be perhaps not altered necessarily, although there's the possibility of doing what's called network address translation, which, in fact, does interfere with the end-to-end principle because what uh, may be sent on one end is not how it looks when it's received on the other end. So I've never been a big fan of, um, of this whole network address translation because it, it violates the end-to-end principle. I think that over time we will ultimately discover that firewall notions are inadequate to protect against uh, hazards on the network and that ultimately every device on the network has to be able to defend itself. When the original design was done, we assumed that anyone could talk to anyone else because we didn't know who would usefully be able to do that. But we also said, you don't have to talk to anybody if you don't want to. And so if you receive a packet from some random source uh, and you can't identify them or you haven't gotten a handshake that says, yes, I know who you are and yes, we have cryptographic shared variables. If you're not satisfied, you can throw the packet away or send back a rejection notice. I expect devices to do that. I think that's a responsible design is to inhibit the device from doing anything which it doesn't think is safe, which means don't talk to people that you can't identify. So I think that we are moving back towards the end-to-end principle and with the philosophy that you don't have to communicate with some device that you don't recognize. Uh, And in fact, you should enforce that. And I think that will actually improve some of the safety and security on the network. Fantastic. I'm just keeping a very close eye on the time. So we've been talking about very serious stuff, and I want to make sure we throw in some more fun things in here as well. (laughs) 
Noticing about how the planning that you put into place when you first built this whole network and the planning that you've had subsequently since about looking to the future. I'm curious to know, though, what's been the most surprising or possibly the most whimsical thing that you've seen happen on the Internet that you were like, that was never like I never thought that was going to happen. <laughs> well, let's see. Certainly, to be fair about this, I think the arrival of the World Wide Web uh, was quite a surprise. Uh, I had seen something similar to it that Douglas Engelbart developed and demonstrated as early as 1968. In fact, if your listeners would like to go online and Google the mother of all demos, you will see something quite astonishing, which is the demonstration of a kind of World Wide Web in a box in one machine at SRI International in Menlo Park, California. Uh, much of uh, the World Wide Web is picked up in that particular uh, demonstration. He had hyperlinking, for example, of documents produced in the online system. Uh, he had built a mouse so that you could point to things on the screen and click on them to say, pay attention to that or go to that document uh, or perform an edit of this document at the place where I'm pointing. So he had to invent the mouse. Uh, he invented portrait mode displays, which made things look more like a sheet of paper than, you know, the sort of green, uh, yellow and green um, uh, displays that were common in the day. Uh, so the, uh, Jim Berners-Lee, of course, comes along in late 1991 uh, at CERN in, uh, in Switzerland uh, with an expansive network-based idea for a similar thing. I'm not sure whether he even knew about the online system from Engelbart at the time. And of course, this evolves into uh, Netscape Communications uh, product the, uh, with follow-on to the Mosaic browser. And it suddenly triggered this avalanche of content being created by people who were able to either write their own HTML or had an application that did that for them. I was totally blown away by the amount of content that suddenly showed up on the net mm. that people just wanted to share. They weren't asking for any kind of compensation at all. They just wanted, thought, well, maybe people would find what I know interesting to, uh, to them. And so I'm seeing this pile of stuff just flowing into the net in the mid-1990s. Thinking, and then of course Google comes along uh, with the with its search engine, uh, following AltaVista and uh, Archie and several other things, Yahoo and so on, which helped to try to make sense out of this increasing pile of content. I was amazed that people would share so much information without expectation of compensation. And I'm pretty sure they were doing it for the satisfaction of knowing that what they knew might be useful to somebody else. I, mean, there, I think there is this, this secret desire in all of us to believe that we've done something that's useful for someone else. We've shared something that's helpful to someone else. And the Internet is a perfect medium in which to try to do that. So that certainly surprised me. Now, as far as things that, you know, funny things, well, of course, the, when, when the first Internet picture frame showed up, I remember thinking, what? What do you mean the Internet-enabled picture frame? What does that mean? Uh, and, of course, people said, well, it downloads images from a website and then cycles through them. And that means the grandparents can see what their grandchildren are doing when they get up in the morning. They just look at the picture frame, and it's just updated itself from the latest website. Uh, and that surprised me. On the other hand, I do remember in the, I think it was probably in the early 1990s, there was a, or maybe late 80s, there was a uh, convention or a, uh, an exposition called Interop, which stood for Interoperability. 
uh, it was started by a friend of mine, Dan Lynch. And during one of the interop shows, somebody decided to put a toaster up on the network so you could send an SNMP control packet to say how, how burned you wanted your toast. And we were all saying, oh, isn't that funny? Ha, ha, ha. Uh, and then someday everybody <laughs> will have internet-enabled devices on them. Well, now, here we are. The Internet of Things is rapidly uh, flowing on us. But I remember at the time we were all thinking that would be pretty funny. I used to make jokes about, oh, yes, someday every light bulb will have its own IP address. Well, guess what? You know, Philips <laughs> makes an internet-controlled light bulb, yep. as do others, I suppose, and they all have their IP addresses. So, you know, don't make fun of things that, uh, because who knows, they may come true. Uh, so those are some of the things, and I, I, I suppose the obligatory observation, I never expected as many cat videos to show up in the net as have, uh, <laughs> wow, you know, who spends their time watching cats? Okay, so you mentioned Tim Berners-Lee and the World Wide Web, and as part of the research for this episode, I'm kind of forced at asking this question. I've seen a picture of the two of you wearing both t-shirts, <laughs> where you're wearing a t-shirt wearing that says, I did not invent the web, and he's wearing a t-shirt saying, I did not invent the internet, which is by itself an amazing t-shirt, but I think the important part here is that it is the only, t uh, the only picture ever I've ever, f I've ever seen of you not wearing a suit. So. Uh, yeah, right. Well, and I kind of pulled that over my coat. There's, there's, of course. There's a story about the three-piece suits, uh, if you want to finish this interview with that story. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. yes. All right. So this Absolutely. is a very simple story. Uh, I'm at Stanford University. I've been running the Internet Research Program from there as a, an assistant professor. And the Advanced Research Projects Agency says, why don't you come to Washington and just run the whole thing and run the packet satellite program and the packet radio program and the packet security program along with Internet. So I agree. And my wife, who's from Kansas, but was with me at Stanford, says, you're going to Washington or we're going to Washington three-piece suits. So she goes off and she buys three three-piece suits from Saks Fifth Avenue at Stanford Shopping Center, including a seersucker three-piece suit because she knows that it's going to be hot and humid during the summertime in Washington. So I show up around August or so uh, at ARPA. And uh, the next thing I know, uh, I am asked to go testify at some committee uh, at the Congress. And I'm wearing my three-piece seersucker suit. So I show up and I do my testimony and I go back to ARPA and weeks go by and one day the director of ARPA calls me into his office and says, um, I, and I want to talk to you about your uh, congressional testimony and I'm thinking, oh, you know, did I screw up? Am I about to lose my government job? Is it the end of the world? And so I sit down and he says, oh, I have the letter from the chairman of the committee uh, in front of me. He says, thank you very much for Dr. Sir's testimony. By the way, he's the best dressed guy from ARPA we've ever seen. And, and I took that as positive feedback. So I've been wearing three-piece suits ever since. That is amazing. That has not changed yet. I think we, you are still probably the best dressed person in tech well, that I know. Well, I want That's to tilt sure. my camera here so that you can see that I am indeed wearing a three-piece suit here <laughs> I'm in my so happy. Office. I'm so happy I'm recording <laughs> this right now. <laughs> For those who are listening on the podcast, Vint is wearing a three-piece suit right now. <laughs> well, actually, the, 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 it Wonderful. was very well, appropriate to wear a three-piece suit in any case, because I was at the Inter-American Inter Development Bank with a whole lot of you know very senior people. And so I think it's a sign of respect to show up well-dressed when you're speaking to people who are more important than you are. I I'm so sad right now that I'm wearing just a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Vince, um, unfortunately, we are running out of time. I would love to spend more time chatting with you, but I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to chat with us uh, and come with us and celebrate our 100th episode. It's been absolutely lovely and a complete delight speaking to you today. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, I am looking forward to uh, spending more time with the uh, Google Cloud team. Uh, and as you know, we are making some very serious investments, not only in increased scale, but also new diversity uh, in the system. So as time goes on, we are going to see not only our conventional CPUs, but the graphics processing units, the GPUs, and now uh, increasingly the uh, TensorFlow processing units for doing multi-level neural networks, and eventually, assuming we're successful, uh, we will we will have quantum processing units that will allow people to do things faster than they ever could before for certain kinds of optimization. So the the system which started out being a warehouse computing uh, commodity uh, commonality is now going to become a much more diverse computing platform that can specialize to solve uh, particular problems that our customers have. So I'm very excited about this new heterogeneous computing environment that Google brings uh, to its customer base through the Google Cloud. That is definitely uh, very exciting. And if you want to come back to the podcast and tell us more about it, we're definitely, definitely down for that. I'd be delighted to do that. Anytime. All right, well, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much. Goodbye. See you guys on the net. Oh, my God. We just interviewed Vince Cerf. This was oh amazing. Oh, my God. Career <laughs> <laughs> uh, highlights. We, we got to admit that uh, we've been maybe just talking about how happy we were for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> yep. So um, I want to say definitely like this is episode 100 to all our listeners, to all the people who have downloaded our podcast, to all the people who have wandered up to us and said hello. Thank you so much for listening to us. By to you doing that means that we were able to interview Vint. Yes. Also, thanks to Vint Surf. You know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks. <laughs> Still so giddy. <laughs> yeah, I know. This was amazing. Like a huge opportunity that I would have never expected to have. And it was, you know, because long time ago, October 2015, 2015 yeah. we got together in a meeting and you went like, why don't we do a podcast? And I was like, okay, whatever. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And a year and a half later, we interviewed Vince Surf. And we have 100 episodes. Actually, it's two years. It's been two years. Two. Oh my God, I'm old. 52 weeks, weekly episodes. Like, yeah. it's been two years. We're not going to go over our favorite moments of the whole podcast, because right now it was this episode, clearly. <laughs> Without losing any respect for all of the amazing episodes we've done before, thanks so much also for all of the guests that we had over those 100 amazing episodes. Yes. I feel like there's one that deserves an, like an extra mention, because we've had him so often. Paul Newson. So, Paul Newson, thank you so much for recording. I feel like it's been like four episodes at least. We have a section. Yep. We, we have a, a category of the of the podcast, which is Paul Newson. Thanks to him, too. No, absolutely. And we should also make mention to a decent chunk of people who work behind the scenes who have also made this possible. Uh, Greg, our manager, uh, Shana, who runs social, Neil and marketing. Um, I'm probably going to miss someone. Uh, uh, Sean Don't and James, who are our editors. Exactly. Don't forget our editors. Our editors are amazing. They do a wonderful, wonderful job. Uh, if I've forgotten anyone, I'm 
deeply apologetic, but you're all incredible. Did I miss anyone? I don't think so. And if you did, now I feel apologetic too, because I don't remember anyone else. Definitely. Like you all helped so much. Um, and we are so, so, so very thankful. I feel like to celebrate our 100 episodes, since we got this amazing episode as a present to our audience, I feel like our audience should give us a present back. They need to get in contact with us. Yes, they should send that selfies. A 100 episode selfie or something. Yes. 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 Pictures of puppies too are also very good. <laughs> yeah. How can they get in contact with the podcast? Go on. You know you oh, want to do this. We're going to do that. Okay. So you can send Let's us your it. selfies uh, to uh, via email at... Hello at GCP Podcast. You can send us your selfies via Twitter. At, at GCP Podcast. You can send us your selfies on Google Plus. At plus GCP Podcast. You cannot send us selfies through our website because we do not have a form, but it's gcbpodcast.com. And if I remember correctly, you can also send us selfies on Slack. Hash podcast on bit.ly slash gcp dash Slack. Oh, one more. A Reddit, 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 Reddit. I forgot about it. Reddit slash r slash gcbpodcast. Awesome. So yeah, send us your selfies. We're just curious to know what are your happy faces while you were listening to this episode. Yeah, please do. Um, well, Francesc, I know you're exhausted. It's a late night where you are in Paris. It's a very early morning where I am in Melbourne, Australia. I am currently retired and I have a burger waiting for me. Yep. But thank you to you for joining me for 100 episodes. Thank you, Mark, for joining for 100 episodes. To be honest, it is not as bad as it sounds. It was pretty fun. It was. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. <laughs> wonderful all right thank you thank you (laughs) thank you all for listening and uh (laughs) talk to you all next week for episode 101 yeah see you all next week (laughs) 